in Scripture. Uh, so we're going to begin uh, begin our study on Gideon tonight. So we, we move into Gideon, and like I, as I was praying, I know you know a lot of you probably are um, familiar. Maybe you know even if you haven't even grown up in church or spent any time in church, you probably still have heard of Gideon. I mean, if you've stayed at a hotel, you probably know who Gideon is because you've seen the Gideon the Gideon Bible. But um, we're going to spend three weeks uh, covering Gideon's life, so it's going to be broke down. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I personally feel like, as I've been preparing and getting ready for this evening, I feel like there's probably three weeks in this one sermon. And I'm just being honest. There's so much here that could have been broken down over the course of time. So I'm going to I'm going to probably not going to be able to go as deep as I would like to go as we cover these things. And so just take your handouts home and continue to read through Judges on your own. And um, there's just there's so many wonderful things here for us to glean from, from the pages of Scripture. And one of the things that I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to weave my story into, um, and, and my story may be familiar to you know some of you in the room, maybe others, that's not the case. I'm going to weave my story through um, our text and our, our sermon tonight. Um, and this isn't, uh, let me say this, it's not for a pat on the back for Brian, but I think that my story really closely relates to the story of Gideon. And what I want to do is just give you, just some, help you practically understand, and it'll be helpful for us in our discussion tonight. Well, what does this look like for us today? And, and let me say this, my story is not, uh, it's not a story about a, path to full-time ministry because if you think that you're like okay well I can completely check out because you know God hasn't called me to full-time ministry and I would say be careful I said that too um, but but this isn't a story about a path to full-time ministry it's a story about God's unfolding grace and it's a story about how God likes to take the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of ways and do wonderful and amazing things that we can never do in in and of ourselves and so that's the that's the story of Gideon that's my story if you're a Christian tonight that's that's probably your story too um so let's just begin I am uh and for some of you this won't come as a shock but for some of you it's going to I am extremely introverted I have always been introverted and for me to uh and so it's not like okay well I was introverted and then God called me to ministry and now I'm no longer introverted. That's, that's not how it works. I'm still extremely introverted. I would honestly, if I'm being honest, I would rather be in a room alone than in a room with, full of people. That's just the way that I am. And so I can get extremely uncomfortable around people. I can get extremely uncomfortable talking in front of people. Which I know you, uh, you know, a lot of times I have this conversation, they're like, there's no way you're introverted. Like, you just go, you know, you do this or you do that. And, you, and I'm like, well, it's not natural for me. It's not, that's not my natural tendency. But God has called me to this position. He's called me to certain things. And so I have to step out of my comfort zone and do things that are unnatural and uncomfortable for me. And that's what, honestly, that's what we have to do is, what we have to do as Christians. And so, Um, I was thinking about how God saved me. Uh, It was in this fellowship. It was before this building was done. It was back when we were meeting over in what's now the kids' zone over in the East Sanctuary at the time. And and so it was back in 2001, so 22 years ago, which that's mind-boggling to me. It feels like it was just yesterday, but it feels like it was so long ago at the same time. And, uh, and I can remember God saved me. And I mean, he radically changed my life. And so I just began to, like, I just tried to figure this whole thing out. And so I just started, um, just started doing all the things that I'd never done before, like reading my Bible and understanding my Bible. And like, I was just eating it up. I couldn't get enough. I was like a sponge. And so I just started, I wanted to be around the people of God because I, I didn't know what it was like to be a Christian. I knew the only way I was going to figure this out by is by being around them. And so I got plugged into what was then Sunday school. We now call our, our community groups. But I can remember getting plugged in. And um, maybe some of you feel this way. And some of you, you're like, I can, there's no way I can relate to that, Brian. Like, I, I just don't get it. But I can remember, especially early on, 
I would be sitting in, in somebody else's, it's not like I'm teaching Sunday school, I'm just in the Sunday school, okay? You with me? Does that make sense? And so I'm just in the class, we didn't have sermon-based discussion, you know, most times it was just somebody teaching a, teaching a lesson, and, uh, and so they would pose a question, or they would bring something up for discussion, and uh, there were moments where, like, God was stirring in me, He was working in me, and I knew that He was calling me to to step out in obedience and to say whatever it was and however it related. And I can't give you a specific example about what was to be said. I just know I can give you a specific example of what happened in that moment every time I felt like God would have me to say something in a room full of about 15 people, okay? This is what would happen. My heart would begin to pound out of my chest. I would start, my hands would start sweating, I would physically start sweating, and then occasionally I would get the courage to speak up in somebody else's Sunday school, and my voice would be quivering. It would sound like I was about to cry. I mean, literally, that's exactly what would happen. And it would happen every single time. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I talk in front of people? Okay? And I want you to hear that because... That's the same, I'm the same person. That guy that sat in Sunday school 20 years ago is the same person that's, that's standing here this morning. And there was a process that, that God did and used to bring me from there to here. But let me be completely honest with you. I'm still uncomfortable. It's still uncomfortable for me. And, and you need to know that and to understand that as we begin our conversation about Gideon this evening. Because God is in the business of taking the weak and insignificant and transforming them and using them for His good, for our good and for His glory. That's what He does. And so here's what God does. God comes in our weakness with the promise of His power that will transform our inadequacy into His strength. That's what He does. He comes to us in our weakness with the promise of transforming our inadequacy into his strength, like he's doing this work. We've heard this said before. You've heard the, the, the comment, um, God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to, to what? To leave us that way, right? And, and there's, there's a lot of truth in that. And if, if we're honest, Gideon vividly portrays this reality that God doesn't see us just for what we presently are, but for the potential for what we can become through His work in our lives. And so it's not just about where we presently are, but where God is taking us and the potential that He sees in His children and the work that He wants to do is we're becoming the people He's called us to be. And so, and let me, let me say this too, because I don't want you to think this because I think a lot of times when you hear that it's like okay well he sees this thing he loves that like it's not like God loves this future version of you God loves you he loves you as you are the reality is is that he loves you too much to leave you that way that's the whole point but he doesn't love some future version of you he loves you he loves me he loves us but he's he's in the process of shaping us and forming us and so um, it's important as we begin our conversation tonight, it's important that we understand that Gideon did not begin as a hero. Uh, and at the end, what you'll see is that he was a man that had some serious flaws. And, and uh, you know, that's encouraging that God was still capable of using this guy who didn't start as a he- out as a hero and still, you know, he wasn't perfect. And so that's, that's good news for, for us. But what we see here is that if you were to meet Gideon before the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, what you would find is uh, you wouldn't find a hero. That's not what you would find. What you would find is you would find a man who was defeated, a man who was discouraged, a man who really was in utter hopelessness and feeling just completely and totally helpless. That's what you would have stumbled across. And, and if you had a conversation with Gideon, you wouldn't be going like the angel of the Lord did and said, oh, mighty man of valor. That's not what you would have been saying. You would have, you would have felt sorry for Gideon. You would, have, you would have tried to console Gideon. 
that's what would have happened. That's the current situation that we pick up in, in uh, Judges chapter 6. Okay, so let me read. Let's read the first 10 verses of Judges chapter 6. All right. So the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of, the Midi- of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and became... Uh, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and in caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Hence why Gideon felt as he did. Like he was just in a low place. And, because, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall, have, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So remember in Judges, what we have is very cyclical. Remember, it's just like this is the fourth go-round of the cycle of where the people of God turn their, turn their back on God and they sin against God. And then God brings judgment in order to bring them back to himself. And then they cry out to God and then he brings deliverance. And, and then things go well for a while and then the people go back to sin. And so it's just this endless cycle that we see going through the, the narrative of Judges. And so, uh, as Pastor Matt, you know, spent some time last week on talking about Deborah and, and Barak, and, and what we see here is, is there were 40 years of, you know, after God delivered in this time with Deborah and Barak, then there was this 40 years of freedom, and there was this 40 years of peace, and then the people gradually went back and, and started just this repetitive cycle again. They took their eyes off the Lord, began to worship Baal, and then thus... There was the consequence of their sin, which was the oppression of the Midianites. And that's why the Midianites came. And so they're now invading their land. And so Israelites, uh, the Israelites would do all the hard work whenever it comes to planting the produce and planting. Plant. So they would do all the hard work of tilling the land. They would plant the seed. And then when it was ready for harvest, what would happen? The Midianites would come into town. And they would take all the harvest. They would take everything. They'd take everything. They'd take all the food. They'd take all the, the uh, livestock. They would take everything. What they didn't take, they just destroyed. They would load it up on these camels. And so it says that all the camels, they would load up hundreds of pounds of, of food on the camels. And they would leave town. And there was nothing that was left. They, they destroyed everything and took everything with them. And so the, the Israelites had done all this work and all this preparation. And then just to have somebody come in and take their spoil. To take all their stuff. Now imagine what that would feel like if you've done all the hard work. You work all month for a paycheck and somebody swipes in every single month and says, Thank you very much, I'll take that. Hold on. You know what I mean? And then next month rolls around and you work your tail off and you're like working overtime to make up for all the boss money from the last month and they walk in and I'm like, I'll take that. Man, we would be in a low place too. And that's where God's, that's where God's, people, uh, God's people are. And so they just come in and invade and do this and there's this superiority. They come in, they strip things down bare and leave nothing in their wake. And what happens is, is there's this seven years of repetition, and they come in and do the same thing over and over and over, and the burden became too great. And so what did the people of God do? They cried out to God. But here's what they, here's what they, they didn't do. They didn't repent. They lacked repentance. They cried out to God to save them from, from this, from what, the, what the, the Midianites were doing, but they weren't repenting. And so until now, think about it, until now, when the people cried out, God would send a what? 
What would God send? Who would God send whenever the people cried out up until now? He would send a... It, he would send a... What, we're in the book of... Yes, very good. Okay, he would send a judge. Well, he doesn't send a judge first here. What does he do? He sends a, he sends a prophet. And the reason why he sent a prophet is because his people needed repentance more than they needed relief. See, they just wanted relief. They just wanted relief from, from the situation they were in, from the consequences they were experiencing. They, they didn't, and so God sends a prophet to tell them what you need more than anything is you need to repent more than you need relief from this current situation that you find yourself in. And there's a difference for crying out for help from trouble and crying out in repentance from sin. In 2 Corinthians, this is on your handout, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and that's what Paul's talking about. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's just saying there's, there's a difference. There's a difference. And so uh, everybody's sorry when they get caught, but that's something that's very different from repentance when we look in, in Scripture. And so... Uh, he begins by, what he does is he begins by reminding the people of his unchanging faithfulness and his grace. And so that's when he starts talking about how he delivered them from Egypt. And he starts going through all these things and how God has been faithful time and time and time again. And he does that because he, and then he brings up this whole thing with the covenant in verse 10. He says, remember the covenant. I said, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. See, the people had deliberately and defiantly broke the covenant. They had brought this on themselves, and that's what God was trying to get them to see. What you're experiencing, you're experiencing real pain. Clearly, we can understand that. We can, we can get on board with that. You're experiencing real pain, but you're experiencing because you brought it on yourself. See, they were what they were and where they were because they had turned away from the living God. That's, that's the reason they, they were what they were and where they were is because they had turned away from the living God. And I think that you and I, we need to hear this, we need to hear this too because there, too often people and, and Christians fall into this category as well. Experience consequences of our own sinfulness, our own foolish choices but we refuse to take responsibility for what we've done. And that's what's going on here. And he said, that's why you're, I'm not sending a judge. You've you got to take, take personal responsibility. You gotta, there has to be personal responsibility that takes place. And we live in a culture that we want to play the victim card every time at every corner. We want to play the victim card. It's always somebody else's fault. Or it's, it's, it's not fair. We talked about this a little bit Sunday morning. It's like, okay, well, well, it's not fair. Like, this isn't fair. Why, why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. Like, this shouldn't be going on as long as it's going on. How could, this, how could this happen? And there's this victim mentality. But what God wants for us is to, to take personal responsibility for the decisions that we make in our life. That's what, that's what we need to do. And that's where growth, that's when growth begins to, to happen. That's where God, now we're in a position where God can do something in our hearts and in our in our lives. We see this all the time, all the time. I could give a thousand illustrations. That's the problem as I, I was preparing. I don't want to give a thousand illustrations for every point we have here. We don't have time for that. But perfect example, uh, people make poor financial decisions, find themselves in a hole, and they want somebody to come rescue them from their circumstances. Right? They want, they want the church to come rescue them from their circumstances. When you're the one who puts yourself in this situation, or they want the government to come along and rescue them from their circumstances, or they want, it doesn't matter, like, they want their family to come in and to rescue them from their circumstances. They want somebody, come save me, because look at me, this isn't fair, I shouldn't be. You're the one who went and got the loan. You're the one who borrowed all the money. You're the one who tried to keep up with everybody else instead of just living within your means. And now it's everybody else's problem. It's about taking personal responsibility. And it can go with anything. People make poor decisions. And, and what they're sorry for is they're sorry that they get caught. And they don't want to feel the weight of the situation that they created themselves. But here's the thing. 
talking, having this conversation about God's unfolding grace is that God didn't live, leave his people here. That he's preparing them for, for a deliverer. In verse 11, let's pick up in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abad... Ab, Ab, <laughs> I told myself I was going to get this. Last week, Matt cracked me up, which I loved. He was just using the first letter of every word that he came across, which I kind of want to do, but Abai is right. Got it? Abai is right. All right. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared and said to him, uh, and to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Okay, now we're rolling up on the eighth harvest, okay? So seven years this has been going on. And we're rolling up on the, the eighth harvest. And God's going to raise up the most unlikely deliverer in, in Gideon. And I know we got a bunch of city slickers in the room, and uh, I'm city slicker number one. So not that you have need, need to have a full understanding of what's going on here, but understand that typically threshing floors were not in a sheltered wine press underneath a tree. Typically, they would be, there would be a threshing floor up on a hilltop so that the chafe would, would, the wind would blow, there would be a good breeze, and it would blow the chafe, and then the, the wheat and the grain would fall and, and be there on the floor, and then they'd be able to harvest, harvest that. But if you're up on a hilltop, when the Midianites come in and the Amalekites and all from the east, what does that do? That leaves you vulnerable because they're going to be able to, they're going to see you up on the hilltop, and so... So Gideon's not up on the hill. It makes sense for him to be up on the hill, but he's not. He's in a wine press down in a valley under a tree. And so he's doing that uh, because he needs to be in a sheltered place. It's more like a covert operation because why? I mean, we would say he's a coward, but I don't know. I feel like he's pretty smart. He, this way, you know, he's not going to get his, his stuff confiscated. They're not going to come in and take it from him. It'd be foolish to do it up there. And so coward maybe not i don't know but the point is is he's trying to do this in a way that uh that he doesn't get his stuff taken from him but clearly he's defeated and discouraged um and desperate and he's got he's got doubts and in the midst of that now so you get the picture you get the understanding of what's going on in the midst of that the angel of the lord which it's it's not just a angel an angel it's the angel of the lord and so this is this is the manifestation of Jesus before he, before he comes. And so it is, it is God in the flesh that's before him. And so he comes and he says, O mighty man of valor. And this was a, a term for heroic figures in Scripture. See, when, when, when he said that, Gideon's mind probably went to some other places. He probably thought of mighty men of valor that he, he'd heard about. He probably thought about Joshua. Uh, he probably thought about, now, now I have to reference this because I feel like we can't go through the book of uh, Judges without referencing this. But we, it's like we don't have time every week. And so Tony was preaching on Ehud and he got to the last verse and we didn't have time for it. But can we just read verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 31? And after him Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. There's like one verse about Shamgar. And he went beast mode with an ox goat and killed 600 Philistines. See, Gideon's probably thinking of Shamgar. He's not thinking of himself. He's not looking in the mirror and going, oh, you're talking about, you're talking about me? There was no moment that Gideon fell like Joshua or Shamgar or any of the Old Testament warriors that, that we see in Scripture. 
But that's exactly who he would become because the Lord was with him. And we see this all throughout Scripture, and we could, we, could, we could talk about a lot of examples, but God comes to a 99-year-old man named Abram, and he says, your name will be called Abraham, being father of multitudes. And in his old age, he and his wife have a child named Isaac. In the most unlikely person, in the most unlikely way, Peter's brother brings him to Jesus. So, so he brings him this emotionally unstable human being. Right? And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, you're going to be called Rock. You're going to be called Peter. And then Peter goes on to... Now, he, he does some boneheaded things along the way. But he goes on to be a huge instrumental in the beginning of the church in the new testament church as we know it like god used him to do amazing things in amazing ways and so we see this over and over and over again in scripture god looks at us and sees our possibilities through his transforming presence and it's important for us to realize the possibilities because of what god can do in and through us as well all right so we see a couple things as we as we move it along here. Let's address two different things that, that uh, Gideon had a problem with that he had to address. Gideon had to address the problem of discouragement. But if you look in verse 13, if you look in verse 13, it, there's if, why, where, it, we, why we've been forsaken. You, you see over it, like he's like, yeah, but if, but why, but where, but now we've been forsaken and so there's this just this huge discouragement that uh that Gideon is experiencing and he's come to the wrong conclusion we need to understand this that he's come to the wrong conclusion that the problem didn't because what he's doing is he's turning it around on God yeah but if but why but where 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 is God why is he forsaken he's turned this around on God but the real problem is with Israel it's not that God of first abandoned his people it's that where they are he responded to the reality that his people first abandoned him okay and that's important for us to important for us to understand and, and the truth is is it's far easier to blame God for our problems than to face and deal with our sins and responsibilities it's easier to blame somebody else it's easier to look at somebody else and it wasn't that this is important for us to understand too it wasn't that that Gideon had a defeatist complex he really was defeated but as long as he responded in denial they were going to remain enslaved okay and so it's not that hey he wasn't really defeated he was defeated but as long as he as long as he stayed in denial, then there's never going to be able to be this movement forward and, then, and the growth and what God's wanting to, God wanting, is wanting to do. And what we see in verse 14 is that the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? That, that Gideon's commission comes for the Lord. And he's left with no doubt about what he's called to do or what his success or lack of success is going to be in that situation. In verse 12, he says, And the angel of the Lord appeared and said, The Lord is with you. In verse 14, saying, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. And say, He says, Do I not send you? In verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. Over and over and over. He's not, he doesn't have to question whether or not he's going to have success because the Lord is, is with him. He's calling Gideon to go, but he supplied the strength and he accompanies the mission so that he can accomplish what he's called to do. Stop and think about this. I know if you're in, in a D group, you just recently read through Matthew chapter 28. And isn't this sound strikingly familiar to what Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's this clear commission, there's this clear command, and then there's this clear I'm, I'm with you, that I'm accompanying, accompanying you. I'm going to empower you to do what I'm calling you to do. 
And so that, that's why I'm saying like what we see with Gideon is still is so true for us and applicable for us today. He says, am I not sending you? I will be with you. It's important that we understand, too, that God's answer to discouragement isn't positive thinking, but rather the promise of his presence and provision. There's this, uh, you know, there's this thinking today. There's one specific person I'm thinking about, and I'm not going to say their name, but like this whole manifestation of positive thinking, we're just going to think it into existence, and we're going to think positive thoughts. And so, like, there's this thing, it's like that's, that's the, the approach that so many people think. It's like, I just need to have more positive thoughts. I need to think more positively. No, you need to understand that the promise is in the provision and the presence of God. That's how we're able to do the things that God calls us to do. Not thinking good thoughts or positive thoughts. That's not how we get to where God wants us to be. All right? And so we address the issue of the problem of discouragement. But he also had another problem we need to address. And that's the... Uh, problem of adequacy or inadequacy it's the second question that that haunted Gideon this issue of inadequacy he says go and Gideon's like well how can I do that the job's too big for me I'm too small I thought about uh I thought about Eeyore everybody loves Eeyore right he's he's just all he's you know we did Debbie Downer last week so you know, Matt could have talked about Eeyore then, but Eeyore is just, man, it's always, there's no sunshine and rainbows with Eeyore. It's always cloudy skies and raining. You know what I mean? Woe is me. You know, that whole, and so he would say in this situation, which is something that he would say oftentimes is, wish I could say yes, but I can't. You know, I wish I could go, but I can't do this. I'm not able to. And so like, and so he, he says, you know, I, my father's from the smallest clan, and I'm the, I'm the youngest son. And one of the things that we see here is, and it'll be clear as we read on, but he tends to exaggerate his situation. He, he tends to exaggerate on the negative things. And, uh, you know, we all know people like that where, you know, there's this exaggeration on the, on the negative things well, for whatever reason that is but but that's something we've got to got to move away from but he's he's you know his father comes from the smallest clan but there's this deep sense of inadequacy and insignificance he has no confidence whatsoever now i want to time out for just a minute because i'm not so sure that this isn't the right posture like i'm not so sure that that, that this is the type of person that God's really interested in using. Somebody who says, I can't, I can't do this. Like, this is beyond me. I'm not capable. I, I, don't, I don't have what it takes to, to do this. And, and maybe that's the type of person that experiences the commissioning of God. See, you know what's a major red flag for me? And this is true, and I had to learn this early on in ministry. But it is a major red flag for me when somebody has extreme self-confidence, they're really high on themselves. And they, they want to let you know and convince you of how they're perfect for the job and convince you how amazing and awesome they are and convince you that they're going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? And just continually self-promoting. And so whenever that happens, red flag goes up and I'm going... I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. If you look at the major, major people in Scripture, major figures in Scripture, there's this deep realization of personal inadequacy. Like, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I mean, we can go from one to the next, and the, but there are also these uh, major figures in Scripture that pride was really at the root of everything that they were and it didn't go well for them or maybe maybe these major figures started out with a, a spirit of humility that then turned into a spirit of, of pride and it didn't and it didn't end well for them and so the humility plays a huge part in really just a, a a life that God wants to wants to use okay so I don't know I mean I feel like 
Um, it, but it's got to be the right way, okay? So think of it like this. We are inadequate in ourselves, but overwhelmingly adequate through our God. Notice that a lot of the things I'm saying, I'm saying the same thing, just in a different way. Because this is at the heart of what we're talking about. This is really at the heart of the story of, of Gideon. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's why I'm saying the same thing over in different ways, because that's what Scripture says in the same way, in different ways, the same thing in different ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I had... Uh, I'd, I'd been a Christian not not very long and uh and I was just I was just growing and um at the time I was working at the fire department and um one of my best friends was Kevin Lundy who's sitting right back there and uh and so we were talking one day and he says hey you should you should teach Sunday school now remember do you remember the story I told whenever I first started Okay, that's a problem, okay? So remember that because that guy's still the same guy that's, but, but I'm growing and I'm learning. We're having conversations and we're, you know, we're getting together at the fire department with a group of guys and we're praying at the station. We're doing these things. And uh, he's like, you should be teaching a Sunday school class. And I'm like, okay. He said, no, really, you should pray about it. And I'm like, okay. And so I, I'm not praying about that. There's no way in the world that God wants me to teach a Sunday school class. It would be me and my wife and we'd have a wonderful time together. Maybe Kevin, he suggested it, so he needs to be in the room. But I can remember thinking, there's no way. And so I didn't pray about it. And uh, it was probably a month later, we're at the station. He says, hey, so have you been praying about it? And I'm like, no, I haven't prayed about that. I'm not praying about that. Like, this, this is pointless. And he said, you should pray about that. And, uh, and so, you know, if God can use a donkey, he can use your best friend too. So, but I love you, Kevin. I love you. But here's what happened I said okay we were at the fire station it was a Saturday night and I'm laying I'm laying in bed and I'm going okay God I know this is pointless because you're smarter than this but if you want me to teach a Sunday school class I mean you're gonna have to come sit in my lap and tell me I need you to I want you to teach a Sunday school class and I'm like there's no way but hey if you want me to do it then I can pray this because I know better you're smarter than this and so this Saturday night, I get up and I bring my kids donuts. That was like the routine on Sunday morning. I would drive, drive home, bring the kids donuts, then we would come to church. And so we walk into Sunday school class. I sit down, and at the time, Robbie Fairley was teaching our Sunday school. And he says, we are in dire need of Sunday school teachers. <laughs> I'm like, you're kidding me. God, <laughs> there's no way. Like, I can't. I have no clue what he said beyond that point because all I did, I started sweating again. You know what I mean? My heart started pounding. I'm like, God, what are you doing? There's no way. But here's what I did. I got up after the class was over with, after I didn't hear anything I said. I walked up to Robbie and I said, put me on the list. And I walked out the room. Literally, that's what happened. Which then led to Tony having a conversation with me and I started teaching in, in, the, uh, in the youth department. But here's like, I understand, like, this feeling of inadequacy, right? It, like, I can't do this. I don't, I, I don't have this in me. I don't have the ability to do this. But somebody's saying, wait a minute, I see something, I see something in you. And it's like, okay, I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I'm, I'm going to do this. Because the answer to the problem of inadequacy isn't self-confidence. It's God-confidence. Okay, God. You made it clear that I'm going to need you to show up and do what I can't do. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. See, I can totally relate to this, Gideon. <laughs> like, you're going to have to make it so clear. Now, I don't know that this is a prescription. It's more of a description of what happened. Like, I don't know that you should do this. I'm just saying, this is, he says, If now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who, uh, you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, 
I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiasrites. Got it right that time. Okay, so again, there's so many different things that's going on right here. But, and I would say again that this isn't necessarily descriptive. This is how you should handle each, each situation. It's more, I mean, it's not necessarily prescriptive. It's more descriptive. You know, we don't need a sign. Maybe you've heard it said like this. We don't need a sign when we've been given a command. Okay? So, for instance, you don't have to, you don't need a sign as to whether or not we're call, you're called to go and make disciples. You don't, you don't need a sign for that. You've, we've been given a clear command from Scripture, and we've been told that the God of the universe goes with us, and so we have the ability to do what he's called us to do. And so we don't need a sign. We've been given a command, and we've been given the Spirit of God. Okay? But, but that's like Gideon's, he's just trying to figure this out. And, and understand this too. I mean, I don't know how long this takes place. He didn't run to Chick-fil-A and grab, you know, he didn't go to Chick-fil-A and get some stuff together. And like, no, this took some time and it was a big deal. And this, this sacrifice was, was a big deal and it was an expensive deal. And so, you know, he goes and he prepares this, this food. And when he brings the food out, the Lord then takes control. And so Gideon's saying, hey, here's what I'm going to do. And then God's like, no, here's what I'm going to do. Put, put the food up on there. Put the cakes up there. I'm going to, and then he holds out his staff and bam, like, you know, incinerated by fire. And then the Lord disappears. He vanished. And what, what happened in that moment is, is, is Gideon realized, wait a minute, there's, this wasn't just somebody that came up and took up a seat on a rock underneath the tree and watched me, you know, beating some wheat. Like this is, this was God in person. This was this was the angel of the the angel of the Lord. He realized that there was something extremely special about the one who was there. And so what he does is he cries out, and then he builds an altar, which was a huge step in Gideon's faith. He's like, okay, we're moving somewhere now. Like we, we've got some movement, and he's going from this this weak and doubting individual to now he's had a first hand contact with the Lord, and it's changed him. It, he's, he's different now. Gideon's never really the same moving forward because he's been transformed by being in the presence of God. And that's what happens for, for us as believers is we, we become into to the presence of the Lord. When we experience God, it transforms us. It changes us. And then what happens is, is it then becomes a a public expression of that. This isn't on your handout, but, uh, but what we see here is that a private commitment to Jesus must produce a public faith. That's what happens. That's why we're, that's why we're baptized from the very beginning. Like when, we're, when we surrender our lives to Christ, there's this moment of identity that it's a public declaration and that Christ followers, they, they identify themselves publicly and they identify themselves radically. Okay, verse 25. That night, and that's why he's, he's making this altar that, that's for all to see, and, and then we move forward. Then that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. It's interesting that the second bull is seven years old, which I believe probably ties into the seven years of oppression that they've experienced. And he's saying, hey, we're about to, we're about to burn this up. We're beginning to, 
we're, about, we're beginning to move forward. But we need, to, we need to pull a few principles out here for, for us and what we see in this passage and things for us as we, as we move forward. Um, number one, Baal must go before Midian could go. Baal must go before Midian could go. What, what is it that God, what was, what was his original commission? What was his command? What was that he, what is it that the angel of the Lord told him that he was going to do? That he was going to go down and he was going to pull down Baal and he was going to chop down the Asherah? Is that what he said? He said, no, you're going to go and you're going to deliver the people from the Midianites. But that's not the first thing that he, that's not the first thing that he does here. That's not the first thing that he commands him to do. I mean, he's commanded him to do this. He's saying, this is what you're going to do. But then he tells him, hey, go and do, go do it, go do this. And so there's this larger mission that's described, but now we've got something else. That's not where he started. That there's a prior assignment that God has some personal preparation and work that he's wanting to do in Gideon before before he gets to the place where he's going to deliver them from the, from the oppression of the, the Midianites. And so, you know, we see this so oftentimes. So here's a perfect illustration of that. Remember the guy who would shake in his boots to speak up in somebody else's Sunday school class? See, the first thing God called me to do was not to stand in front of you tonight and preach this message. There were, there were a lot of things that led to this point. That God, God called me to, to do something. God called me to say, hey, I'll teach a Sunday school class. And it didn't make any sense, but I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to walk in obedience and do the thing that he's shown me to, to do. And so God is at work in that moment, but in that moment, he's also preparing us for, for something down the road as well. And so there's work being done there. God is going to use us in that season, but also he's... He's helping us and growing us and, and leading us and preparing us for other things as well. And so we see it's like, okay, well, before you can get there, you, you've heard Tony say this a thousand times in here. God's, God's like, hey, when I command you to do something, like we're not moving on to something else until you do what, what I've called you to do. And so this is the first step, and this step is going to lead you to the next step, and then that step's going to take you to the, to the next step. And what, what God wants from us is just this, un, wants to be the unquestioned Lord of our life. He wants complete allegiance from, from us. And it doesn't make sense. See, it would have been easier for Gideon to say, God called me to go and, and to free us from the Midianites, and so that's where I'm going. Because God call, did call him to do that. But it doesn't make sense to, to do this here when God's calling me to do that there. But he doesn't move on. This is what is right in front of him. And so what we know to be true is that there can be no compromise if we desire to see the Lord at work in our lives. And so when God calls us to do something, we don't, we don't call some. We don't compromise in any way. And so I would just ask the question, you know, what, what, might, be your, what might be your bail? What bail do you have in your life that God, God's telling you to tear it down? What are you, what are you doing? What Asherah do you have in your life that it's time to, it's time to start chopping? We're, we're pulling the axe out the shed and it's time to start cutting away because God's saying this, this thing right here, this has got to, this has got to go. And maybe for a long time you've been dismissing it and trying to to pursue God and do God do things in, in other ways in other areas and this thing's still sitting right over here and we're not dealing with the with the bales of the Asherahs in our life and God's calling you to to do that we've got to chop it down knock it down before we can move on to the other things that God has in store for us that's how it works and that's what we see here secondly um, God's altar cannot be built until Baal's altar is destroyed. That you can't, you know, we live in a, we live in a culture of, of both and, that mindset of both and, not either or. If you make people pick either or, then it's a problem. You know what I mean? We like to keep our options open. We, we don't want to really choose. Everything's okay. We just, you know, we accept everything as being okay. But 
what he's saying is the Lord's altar cannot stand alongside Baal's. He didn't say, hey, build an altar next to the altar of Baal. It's got to go. And so we got to take it down. They can't coexist. There's no worship that's going to be acceptable until we remove the false altars from our hearts and from our lives. It's not going to work. That's not the way it works. And this really piggybacks on the first point that we made. But the truth is, is we can't embrace the things that, that oppose God. We, we can't embrace those things and, and claim that we're embracing the absolute truth found in Scripture and claim that we're following God when we're embracing things that He's opposed to and that oppose Him. And, and the, the last thing there is that that's so confusing to a watching world. It makes no sense. When we claim to have allegiance with God and yet we pursue these other things that are opposed to God, it doesn't make any sense. And it, and it harms the, the name of Christ and it harms the name of the church. And it's not, it's not good. All right, number three. The place we must start is our own backyard. It's our own backyard. Before he could lead a nation to faith, he had to deal with Baal in his family backyard. Right? Doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? We've got to begin at home first. Th- think of it like this. If my commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ doesn't first affect my home life, it lacks credibility. We can't, we can't change the world until we've, we've dealt with what's going on in our own home, in our own backyard, right? So we've got to address those things that are close to home before we're going to go and, and change the world. And that's why he's like, hey, you've got to deal with what's going on in your backyard before we can go and do this great big, this great big thing. And it lacks cre- credibility, just like I said a while ago. It's confusing to a watching world whenever, whenever we don't do that. And so we've got, to, we've got to address the things that are going on right around us. All right, in verse 27. In verse 27. So Gideon took ten men... Of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Um, so remember when Gideon's like, I'm, you know, my father's the least of the clans and I'm the youngest. Well, he's clearly not the least, of the, he's got 10 servants just laying around. So, you know what I'm saying? Like I told you how he exaggerated his negativities. And so clearly he's not as bad off as he, you know, projected himself to be. But what did he do? He did exactly as God commanded him to do. And he was afraid. Why was he afraid? He knew how much Baal meant to his family. He knew how much Baal meant to the, to the, friend, the friends that he had. He knew how much Baal meant to the community in which he lived. He knew how important it was. And he was worried about their reaction. It, you know, when we read that, do we, do we say, well, man, he was scared. And he did it, he did it at night. You know, I, I feel like in some ways God is asking Gideon to fight the hardest battle first. You know, like stop and think about it. Some of the hardest places to represent Christ are within the lives of those that are closest to us. True? Like that, that's, the, that's the hardest place. Like send me to I'll go on mission to wherever, right? And I'll boldly proclaim, but man, it's hard when it's our own family. It's hard when it's our best friend. It's hard when it's our, our co-workers that we, we love and care about. It's, I feel like maybe that's the, and the reason why that is is because we have more to lose. But that's the first assignment that he gives, that he gives to Gideon. And, and that's the first assignment that he gives to us as believers. It's like, okay, well, here's, here's where we begin. Here's where we, here's where we start. But it's difficult because we have more to, more to lose. I started thinking about, man, so after I, after I surrendered my life to Christ, my wife was really the only believer in our family. She was taking our kids to school. And, um, and so, you know, I, I was a mess. Our marriage was a mess. And... I surrendered my life to Christ, and I mean, radically changed. And, uh, you know, I start pursuing God, and she stops coming to church. <laughs> and you would think, like, the thing she'd been praying for for so long, would she would be excited about that. I'm like, I think she hates me. I think, I think 
things were, no, I don't think things were a thousand times better whenever I was lost and I was wreaking all kind of havoc in her life and bringing her all kinds of pain. Now I'm living for God. And, and it was the worst in the world. And I can remember in that moment thinking, my goodness, man, this is, this is terrible. Like, it would be so much easier if I just went back to the way things were. And, and some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's not your spouse, but, but maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your brothers and sisters. Maybe you're like, man, this is hard. This is hard. And I had to make a decision. I'm going to be faithful to follow God, and I'm just going to have to trust that he's going to do a work in her heart. And it was a long six months, I'm just telling you. And it was a painful six months. But it's oftentimes, if we're honest, most difficult, the closest home. Will we agree with that? But that's where God is calling us to go to work. He's calling us to do the hard thing in the hard places. That's what he's, that's what he's calling us to. That's what he's calling us to. But here's what, so we look at him and we think, okay, well, here's a man who was afraid. He did this thing by night. But understand this, faith is not obeying without fear. It's obeying despite fear, in spite of fear. Like, I I don't want you to think that, oh, well, Gideon's weak because he's afraid. Well, if you're not afraid, then you're probably not following God. If you're not doing things that scare you to death, like, what are you doing? You, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that we're not afraid. It's that we do it anyway, even when we are afraid. That's what we're called to. And so it's not about fearlessness. It's about obedience. That's what it's about. It's not about a f- uh, fearlessness. It's about obedience. And here's a man who obeyed God, and he was afraid while he did it, but he did it anyway. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, says this. This is Paul talking. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul's saying, I was afraid, and yet I stepped up to the plate. I stepped up to the plate, and I did what God was calling me to do. That's, that's, what, it, that's what being a Christian is all about. See, it's often the God's call in our life that stretches us. Whatever it is that he's calling us to, and we're, we're full of fear and we're full of uncertainty. And that makes sense. We should be when God calls us to do something hard. He calls us to step out in faith. And that's where we see God work. That's, that's in, those, it's in those moments where we have to be completely and totally dependent upon God. And when we step out and we do that, then we see God show up because that's what he does. He goes with us. And that's when we experience oftentimes the most growth so i came on uh remember i told you we're just following the life of brian okay uh so i came on staff here i'd been at the fire department i was there for about 13 14 years and tony asked me to come on staff to help and just serve part-time and uh and i'm like okay man and i felt like god i'd had conversations with tony i felt like god was calling me something more never dreamed he was calling me to ministry i just didn't know what that was and so i was like this is the answer like, I'm going to be the part-time assistant youth helper guy. That's it. I can take that title. And so um, then our senior pastor resigned, and so Tony had to step into interim, and he comes and sits in, in my office, and he says, okay, well, the student ministry is yours. And I'm going, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Remember when I said I would teach Sunday school? I want to take that back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, the whole thing. I'm like, well, hold on. And I can remember in those early days, Fearful doesn't describe what I felt. I can remember so many times, and this is the truth, I'm just telling you. There's so many times that, that we would be having a time of worship through song, and so we're in there singing, the worship team's leading, and I'm standing in the back. And I thought, many times, I thought, I could go out this back door. I could get in my truck, <clears throat> and I'd be almost home before they realize I'm not here anymore. And I thought, legit, I, I could do that. And every time, I would, I would use the old phrase of Charles Spurgeon. Every time, I would walk up to the front of the room, and i walk up on the stage. And as I'm walking up there, I, put, I, would just tell my, I would just say to myself, I believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
got to believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you know. And so I would walk up on stage, and, and I would do what God had called me to do. And then there came a moment where, you know, I'd been doing both for a year. I was serving at the fire department, and um, I was doing ministry here, and I knew God was calling me to ministry here, and I really wrestled with God for an entire year. And, um, and then there came a point where I surrendered, and I said, okay, God, okay, this is clearly what you want. And there's a thousand reasons and a thousand ways that he made that clear. But I can remember the last day. I can remember the last day whenever um, I clocked out at the fire department for the last time and I got in my truck and I sobbed. <laughs> like I was, you know, you know, as people say, well, I, I, ball, I was bawling like a baby. No, I literally couldn't speak. And I'm pulling out of the parking lot and I'm like, hope nobody sees me. <laughs> and... Uh, and I, all I could say was, God, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Because I can't do this, and I am scared to death. And that's what Gideon is feeling here. Like, that's what he's, I'm scared to death. I don't know what's about to happen. When I do this, I don't know what's going to happen. I know you're with me. You've told me you're with me. I get it. But still, this is beyond me. I said, this is out of my control. I don't have any control here. I don't know, I don't know what to do in this situation. But, but that's what Gideon does. And he steps out in obedience and does what God calls him to do. All right, verse 28. And when the men of the town, let's see how they, how they react here. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. And the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull of the altar, was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of jo Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against himself, because he broke down his altar. So, what we see here is we see that there's this anger of the townspeople. They're enraged that this has happened. And we also see a transformation of his dad, that his dad sprang to his defense, which I think is extremely important for us to understand. That I feel like Gideon's actions and obedience probably challenged him in a lot of ways. And stop and think about how this is true. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't think about this, but the truth is, is when we step out in obedience, it's not just it's not just impacting us in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, but it's impacting the people around us as well. That our obedience to the Lord can do great things in the lives of the most unexpected people. And so, so Joash probably felt like, hey, this is something I should have done a long time ago. See, here's the thing. You're, you're waiting, maybe you're waiting to step up and to, to tear down a bale or to tear, tear down an ash or to step out in some kind of and do something that God's called you to do and, and just walk in obedience. And there's people around you that are wanting to do that too, but they don't, they don't know how or they don't know. But the moment you step out, it impacts the lives of the people around you and it influences the people around you. And all of a sudden, it, the people around you become better. The people, and that's what happened with my wife. Like, my wife was an amazing Christian woman, but when I got saved, man, we became a team. It was us against the world, and God did, began to do great things in her life, and it elevated her walk with the Lord just as I began just to walk out obedience to God. It affected the lives of the people around me. My sister came to faith. My dad came to faith. My mom came to faith. My stepmom came to faith. What? And it wasn't me. It's just stepping out in obedience and doing what God calls us to do. Like, it is just walking in faithfulness and obedience and just watch what happens. Like, God wants to do great things in your life, but God wants to do great things in the lives of the people around you. And what he's waiting for is for you just to step out in obedience. And when we do that, God is just going to show up in great ways. But we gotta, we got to take the step. We've got to take the step. 
And it will motivate and impact and influence the people around us. Let's finish this up, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he surrounded, uh, he sounded the trumpet and the abiser, whatever, the ab- <laughs> said it too many times, I got it right some, got it, the, Matt, the A's. The A's were called out to follow him. And he said, uh, he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they were, two were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. And we'll, pick up, we'll pick up this story next week, but here's, here's just a couple of things we need to understand as we end our time together. Gideon's reputation and, and influence spread because of his obedience. It didn't just inf- impact Joash. You know who these people were? The Abiasrites? So hard to say. Abiasrites? You know who they were? They were all the townspeople that came to crucify him when he tore down Baal in Asherah. All those people that showed up at his doorstep and said, bring, bring out Gideon. And Joash was like, hold on, just let Baal contend for himself. If he's such a big bad God, let him do his, do his own thing. Those people that showed up on his doorstep, now they're following Gideon. And they're going to follow him into battle. You see the influence and the impact and the reputation that he gained just by stepping out and walking, walking in obedience? They're the same ones that wanted to kill him. Now they want to follow him. So our last two points. One, this is how... Our effectiveness, our effectiveness for the kingdom, it hinges on these two things. Complete dependence on God and walking in obedience. And walking in obedience. We completely depend on God to do what we can't do. And we walk in obedience and just look at the amazing things. Matt said it last week. He said he was having a conversation with somebody last week. and said... God leaves a breadcrumb, leaves breadcrumbs of amazing stories in the lives of the people that he loves in the walk in obedience, right? He, he wants to do great things. He will do great things. He is doing great things. We've got to be completely dependent upon him, but we've got to take the step of obedience. That's what he's calling us to do. So let me pray. God, thank you for, thank you for this evening. Thank you for just our time together in your word i pray that um god i pray for every single person in here i know that obedience um, is the same in many ways but i also know that you're individually that you, you don't need me to give a specific example because you individually in this moment are calling your children to very specifically and personally step out in obedience. And I pray for everyone in this room that we would be faithful, that we would be obedient to do the things you're calling us to do. Help us to live our lives in that reality with that kind of faithfulness each and every day. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your, that you're the kind of God who takes the most unexpected people. There's a whole room full of them. I, I'm not special, God. I'm no different than anybody in this room. There's a whole room full of people, unexpected people, and you do unexpected things in unexpected ways in their lives. And so thank you, thank you, thank you that you allow us to be a part of the work that you're doing in this world. We just want to serve you well, so help us to do